resurrecting me. The psalmist looking ahead saw the glory of the resurrected Christ approaching the doors of heaven. And there the Christ declared, lift up, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory will come in. Well, heaven had never seen a human being approach with such audacity, with such authority. And so the question, I don't know if it was the Archangel Michael, I don't know if there's a porter in heaven, but the question came back from behind the gate. Who is this King of glory? What's his name? Come on, what's his name? Oh, you can do better. What's his name? Again, by what name do we rise? By what power do we come into heavenly places? What's that name? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come tonight. We know you want to speak to us. So we come with open hearts and open ears and open minds. And we say, Lord, speak to us. Your truth. Be glorified, Lord. Be worshipped, O God. In Christ Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Glory. Glory. Well, if you're joining us for the first time tonight, if you weren't here last night, let me quickly, quickly get you caught up. We've been focusing our theme for these three days, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. On Matthew 10, 7, there, the Lord Jesus sending out the twelve commands them, As ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And last night, we discussed the need to rebuild and fortify the kingdom here on earth. We talked about the violence that the kingdom of God is suffering and the need for resurrection power to come into the kingdom. Tonight, I want to talk about the who and the how of the rebuilding. Tonight, I want to talk about answering that call about proclaiming the kingdom of God with power, 
about restoring the breach, standing in the gap, building up the kingdom. I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, building upon a cloud. And I know for some of you, your mind is, whoa, wait, where are you going? You don't build on clouds. Clouds are soft and clouds are fluffy. See, but you don't understand our God. He uses the weak things of this world to confound the strong. He uses those things that seem to make no sense to confound those who have more degrees on their wall than a thermometer. He raises up ignorant fishermen and sends them to debate with the greatest minds of their time and gives them wisdom such that they had to stay, take a step back and say, surely these men have been with Jesus. So we're going to talk tonight about building upon the cloud. Follow me, if you will, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. I want to read just the first two verses. Just the first two verses, Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. There the word of the Lord says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to talk to you about that cloud that the writer of Hebrews saw. This cloud of witnesses. I want to talk to you about the meaning of the cloud. I want to talk to you about archetypes in the cloud. I want to talk to you about building upon the cloud. And my hope is this. I sent you home with homework last night. I was going to start by asking if you did it. I don't need to ask. There's a living witness and a testimony. There's... I, I, who was here last night? Do you feel, do you see the difference between last night and tonight's worship? Do you see the difference? You can hear it. You can feel it. It's not that there are more people in the room. There's a different energy. People who walked in defeated yesterday came in and realized, I have victory over that defeat. People who walked in wondering, is my marriage going to make it, came in knowing tonight that he is both the author, the starter, and the finisher of our faith. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it to the end. We went home and yes, we confronted some harsh things about ourselves. But in seeing our weakness and in seeing our incapacity, we see also the glory of Christ and his ability to work and fill in those gaps. I want to talk to you then about your role in the church. Not just this church. Our meeting tonight is much bigger than one congregation. It's much bigger than one fellowship of assemblies. It is much bigger than Hackensack, New Jersey, or all of New Jersey. It is bigger than Rockland County and Bergen County. It is so much bigger. 
Because what God has spoken to us about is rebuilding the kingdom here on earth. And his kingdom is not only an everlasting kingdom, it is a universal kingdom. It is for every tribe and tongue and language and people. It is for the rich as much as it is for the poor. It is for the ignorant as much as it is for the learned. It is for the young as much as it is for the old. And so the reality is we are about something greater than ourselves tonight. So let me talk about this cloud. The writer of Hebrews says that we are compassed about by a great cloud of witnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul reminds us that everything, everything that happened in the Old Testament, every trial, every problem, every failing, the being called out into Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, the wandering in the wilderness, the building up of a kingdom, the conquering of the enemies of God, the falling away from the grace and the glory of God, the Babylonian captivity, the return from captivity, the coming of the Christ. Everything we read about in scripture was written for our admonition. It was written for our encouragement. It was written so that we would not put our hands to the plow and look back. It was written so that we would not be discouraged. It was written so that we would not box as those who punch against the air, but that we would know our place and know our enemy. As the young people today say, we would know how to stay in our lane and get the job we were called to do done tonight. And so as we look to the cloud, James also spoke about the cloud a little more specifically. He spoke about Elijah. And he reminded us, we have a tendency to look at the cloud because the cloud is glorious. The people in the cloud are our heroes. And we have a tendency to look at men like Elijah and say, oh, if only we had Elijah today. But he reminds us, Elijah was a man of like passions, just like any one of us. He was tempted just like any one of us. He was weak and frail, just like any one of us. But Elijah prayed and the heavens were shut up for three years. Elijah prayed and the rain returned. It wasn't because Elijah was special. It wasn't because Elijah was born at a particular time. It was because Elijah believed, when I pray, God hears me. How much more this generation, when we have the promise that this is the confidence that we have, if we ask anything according to his will, God hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know in that whatever we ask, we have the petition. Notice the repetition of that word, whatever. And lest you think, oh, you know, Pastor Pete, you're asking too much of us. Did not Jesus himself say, if two of you, just two, we need to get the whole congregation together. We need to get seven pastors and our, our old pastor back in India and we need 15 people and we need to call 20 sisters together and we need to have an all night prayer meeting. But Jesus said just two of you agree as touching anything it will be done for you by my Father. And so why the cloud of witnesses? What is the meaning of the cloud? The cloud represents those who have gone before us, the greats who are written in this Bible, and some of the greats who are not. 
The people who have gone before us, the people, the trailblazers who opened a way so that we can sit in comfortable assemblies and know that God is God. It wasn't always like that. Think about even the name of this conference, Pentecostal Youth Fellowship. There was a time in this country, not even 70 years ago, where if you put the name Pentecostal on anything, you could guarantee the government was going to run you out of town. People were going to literally, not figuratively, throw rocks and bricks and boulders at you. They were going to puncture the tires in your car. They were going to spit on you on the way out. But there are men and women who blazed the trail before us and said, this is how it's done. And they didn't do it so that we could be comfortable. They did it so that we could build upon what they've already established. And so I told you, I'm going to talk about the meaning of the cloud, but I also want to talk about archetypes in the cloud. Now, archetype is a strange word. For those of you who don't know what an archetype is, an archetype is someone who is raised up or something that is raised up as the perfect example. They're a type and a shadow of a particular thing. This is what this thing means. And all throughout Scripture, we have archetypes that are raised up to help us figure out, what is my role? Can anyone in the room be honest enough? You're struggling right now with the question. You know that you're saved. You know you're a child of God. But God, what would you have me to do? You feel like Paul when he was thrown down off of his horse and he's laying and he hears the voice, Lord, what would you have me to do? Why am I here? It's the biggest number one question that any belief system has to answer. If you cannot tell people what... By the way, that's why the secular system is so bankrupt. That's why the school shootings and the mass shootings and all that we see. Because we've convinced the generation that you're here by an act of random chance plus mass times energy and you just happen to be here and the only reason you're here is to make the best of what you've got for the 50 or 70 years you get and then rot in the ground and it's over and done with. And therefore the value of a human being is no different than the value of a common cockroach or fly. Well, let me tell you something. I don't randomly look to kill flies, but if a fly comes in my house, I kill it. If a roach crawled on me, it is going to die. That's an invasion. By the way, that's my personal feeling on insects. Outdoors is theirs. Indoors, we can negotiate. If you touch me, it's an invasion. You're going to die. But if human beings are no greater than insects, and if my dog is no more, no more value than my wife or my child, then why should I care about human life? Why should I do anything? And so there is no purpose. There is no meaning. There is no rhyme. There is no reason. There's nothing to live for. But we know the truth. And we serve a greater purpose than that. And we know that we were put on this earth. We know that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And the Lord said, let there be light. We know that God spoke the world into existence intentionally. 
We know that God had a purpose. We know that Jesus Christ is not the Lamb of God slain 2,000 years ago. We know that he was slain before the foundation of the earth. We know that it's not the truth, that lie that you hear. Some silly people will tell you the fable that when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God was in shock and, oh, what do I do now? Before he made man, he knew man would fall. But he had a plan before that. Jesus was not plan B. The whole reason for humanity being created was that he could send a savior so that he could show what he didn't do for the angels could be done for us who are so much lower and so much weaker and so much more fragile. Yet God's power is so great he could redeem such as you and I. So we're here for a purpose. But the archetypes in the Bible serve as a compass guiding us. They're like spiritual GPS. No, there will never be another Moses. There will never be another Joseph. There will never, never be another Esther. But there will be those who serve in capacities like them. And so my question for you tonight is where is your position in the building of this kingdom? You see, if we're going to rebuild the kingdom, if the kingdom of God, and I have a personal belief, and I don't have time tonight I've had people question this before and go, well, that's your personal belief and it's not really scriptural. I can walk you through scripture and show you. Jesus is not coming back for a broke down, defeated church hiding in a corner somewhere, waiting just a few more weary days to fly away. He's not. Now, there will be a great apostasy. There will be a falling away. There will be a separation of the sheep from the goat. There will be a separation of the wheat from the chaff. There will be a separation of the wheat from the tares. And I believe that God will do that on this side of eternity. I believe that the reason for the preaching of the false is to separate the truth from the false. Because let's face it, if you're really saved, there's only but so long you can listen to the lie. And all of a sudden, come on, anyone in the room willing to be honest? You've had the wool pulled over your eyes for a little while. You thought so-and-so was a great man of God. You thought such-and-such such was a great ministry. But you have the discernment because you spend time in the prayer closet with the Lord. And you read this book not as something that you just carry around on Sunday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. This book is written in my heart. And if you can say that then you know at some point you realize, wait a minute, this, this isn't scripture. This isn't God. And you stepped away. And you wonder in shock, why is no one else waking up? We talked about it last night. Unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. The reason why you can preach lies and you can preach fables and you can tickle people's fancy and fill a church with hundreds of thousands of people Hallelujah. is because the reality is if you cater to the flesh of the dead, they will come. Think about it. Before you got saved, what got you off the couch? A great party? Some alcohol? Some drugs? Some other temptation? What was it that got you off? Well, think about it. All these men are doing is supplying the same, but in a quote-unquote cleaner fashion. But some of you, most of you, hopefully all of you, you've gone beyond the veil. You've walked through the veil, the torn veil, which is the ripped flesh of Christ, and realized that the opportunity to come into the Holy of Holies is a precious blessing 
purchased by blood. And when you come into that most holy place, the word that you hear, you know you have to live by. Amen. And so we look to the archetypes and we say this. If we are going to rebuild the kingdom, then first thing we have to realize is that there are a people of God that are in captivity today. Let me say that again. There are a people of God who are in captivity. Be careful about your judgment. I made a statement last night. I didn't name that denomination. I don't think I did. There's an entire denomination I won't deal with because of choices that they've made. They've made a clear sense they no longer believe in the God of the, of the Bible. Yet I still believe that there are people in that denominational background who really do love my Christ, really do love the Lord, but they are so confused. They're babes still drinking milk, and they don't know the truth because they've never been taught how to seek God for themselves. Because the biggest fallacy of our generation is the cult of the pastor. So the pastor is responsible to pray. And the pastor is responsible to evangelize. And the pastor is responsible for my home. And the pastor is... No, he's not. Study it out. We were given certain leaders for the purpose of building up the saints for the work of the ministry. It is not the pastor's job to evangelize your neighborhood. It's yours. It is not the pastor's job to raise your children. It's yours. It is not the pastor's job... To witness, so, I mean, come on, we've all done this at some point. Oh, man, after a sermon, we're like, man, if only that pastor could come to my job. So, no, 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 no. He preached that message because you go to your job. So-and-so who needs to hear it, you go tell them about it. No, I can't preach as well as my pastor. Says who? What makes you think we're so gifted? Can I tell you? I went to the Bronx High School of Science one of the best high schools in the country. That's why I'm telling you that. At the time I went there, it had the number one speech and debate team on planet Earth. 99.9% .9 of all debaters on the Bronx Science debate team qualified for state championship. You're looking at part of the 0.1% that never made it. I couldn't speak well enough. I can't argue well enough. My diction wasn't clear enough. I had a list. I was told, my mother was told, when I was in the fifth grade, I would never do public speaking because of the list and the mouth formation of my mouth. But here I am standing before you. I don't do this because I'm gifted. I do this because I'm anointed. There's a huge difference. And we've got to stop chasing talent and thinking talent is valuable. I would rather an anointed person who can't read the first cleft of music over someone who graduated from Juilliard sitting here leading the worship because the anointed man or woman of God knows how to take us into the presence of God. The talented person knows how to make us think we went there when we did it. And so if there are people of God who are in captivity, God once again needs to raise up people in the image and the fire and the anointing of Moses. Men who may not know a whole lot, who've been broken. Some of you are wondering, why, why God? They were saying when they sang that line, from the ashes I will, you know, by his name I will arise, from the ashes of defeat, you were like, oh, that's me. I feel like I'm being defeated and broken and defeated and broken and defeated and broken. God, why are you breaking me? Please remember that Moses started good. 
He was living in Pharaoh's house. He had a great education. God put him in a wilderness for 40 years and so broke his spirit that Moses didn't dare to speak for God because he said, I don't speak well. Find somebody else. And then God said, now I can use him. And we need men who have been broken and we need women who have been broken and humbled who are leaning upon the staff that represents that old rugged cross and say, I may not be qualified. All I have is a stick and a one-line sermon, but I've come to tell this world, let my people go. You are not going to teach them lies in our public schools anymore. You're not going to hold a lock on the public forum. You're no longer going to tell the lie that my views are not allowed in the state house or the school house or the business house. My views are allowed everywhere I go. You cannot close me out. You cannot get rid of my God until you kill every last one of us. We need people in that spirit again. But you see, while we need people like Moses who can pull them out of Egypt and bring them notice, Moses got them out of Egypt. He brought them into a wilderness. He sustained them while they were there. He taught them the law while they were there. But it took Joshua and Caleb to lead them across. I want to speak for a moment to some of the older men. I know this is a youth conference. But gentlemen, I, someone in this room needs to hear this. Some of you already know it. This is not for you. Someone in this room needs to know. God is still looking to put his hands upon men who like Caleb and like Joshua. See, what was different about Caleb and Joshua? There were a couple of things. Number one, when everyone gave a negative report, they were still willing to see the good. Are there any men and women in the room? You've even been laughed at by family members. They're sick and tired of you. Why is it you're always trying to see the good in something? Because that's the spirit of Caleb and Joshua in you that says, though everyone says it can't be done, I see hope. Is there anyone who God has come through for you so many times, you just can't waste the energy on doubting him anymore? And people think you're some giant of the faith, and you're like, no, 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 no. It's not blind faith. It's not ignorant faith. It's not anointed faith. It's faith born out of years of watching God time and time again teach me that my wasted tears and worries don't matter. He's going to get the job done. Caleb and Joshua were also different because, you see, they were older. Everyone from their generation had died out. But Caleb, one of my favorite lines of the Bible, Caleb said, I am as strong at 80 as I was at 40. I still have strength for coming in. That's doing the work in the house of God. I still have strength for going out to battle. I'm not intimidated by these young men. Do I have any older people in the room who say, I'm not intimidated by youth. I see their energy. I know they need direction. I've been to the promised land they want to get to. And I'm willing to spend my last years investing in this next generation to ensure that they have a future greater than mine. Can anyone say amen? So we need those Caleb's and Joshua's. One last thing about Caleb, and this is the other thing I love about him. Caleb is unique in the entire tribe of Israel because he had a unique promise no one else had. Everyone else, the land would be divided in portions according to your family. Caleb had a unique promise. 
Moses had promised him, and it was even written in God's word so that no one can doubt it. When we enter the promised land, Caleb gets whatever he wants. Most of us, if we had that promise from God, and we're looking at 60, 50 even, 70 years old, we would say, God, that piece of land where all the enemies have been cleared out, that nice, plain, level field where everything grows easily, where the corn is already there, and the house of the Lord. You promised, God, I'm going to live in houses I didn't build and eat food I didn't work for. God, I want the easy life. God made that promise to Caleb because he knew Caleb's heart. Caleb says when Joshua asked him, now Caleb, Caleb reminded him of the promise. He said, all right, Caleb, what do you want? He said, give me the mountain of the giants Perhaps my God will one more time give me the strength and I will take that mountain for his glory. I love any human being who has a perhaps faith. Because when you have a certain faith, that's not faith at all. If I gave you, listen, if a billionaire walked into this room, you know he's a billionaire, you know it's legit. Donald J. Trump or, or, or the, the Microsoft guy, Bill Gates, and wrote you a check for a million dollars. There is no doubt in your mind you'd be going cash it. It doesn't take faith to go cash it. Cash it. In fact, you'd be, you'd be foolish not to. But perhaps faith is the faith that the three Hebrew men had in the fire. They didn't go into the fire and say, I know my God will save us. They said, perhaps he will. But whether he gives me the mountain or not, whether he conquers the fire or not, the one thing I know, I will not serve another. I will die giving glory to this God. And we need men and women of that stature again to lead this next generation. Jesus looked out at the multitude and his heart broke because he saw them like sheep having no shepherd. I look at young people. I mean, I've worked with young people long enough that the old young people I started working with are now middle-aged and old. Working with young people since I was 15 years old myself. 49 now. That's a long time working with young people. And I see this generation. Yes, those of you who judge them, let's just be real. Young people don't get offended. You know it. There's a certain degree of direction your generation lacks. I mean, come on. Our men have been raised not even knowing what manhood anymore is anymore. Our women have been raised not knowing what womanhood is anymore. We don't know where we're supposed to go. But don't count them out. There's fire in this generation. There's hunger in this generation. There's a desire because what I love about this generation of young people, whether you want to call them millennials or Gen G or X or whatever title you want to put on them, what I love about this generation is their hunger. And they recognize something is wrong. Someone lied to me about what my life is about. Someone told me that being a Christian was be good enough not to get pregnant or get someone pregnant, not to get hooked on drugs or alcohol, get a good degree, get a good job, and that's all Christianity was about. And something in them says, no, that's a good, comfortable life, but there's something more that God is calling me to. And we need Caleb's and Joshua's who have been to that promised land they want to cross to give them direction. 
You know the enemies that are there. You know the spiritual giants that are waiting to trip them up. Your marriage is intact and looks real great now. But you know 20 years ago, you questioned whether divorce was coming knocking at your door. And you don't have to let them stumble over what you stumbled after. The reason why God preserved Caleb and Joshua so they could lead them. Caleb and Joshua knew where Jericho was. They knew about Ai. They knew where the giants were. They knew where the stumbling blocks were. They knew the mountains from the hills, from the valleys. They knew the land. And we need some people who are willing to invest in this young generation and bring them into the promise of God. But you see, once we have a Caleb and a Joshua, then we get a generation that's prepared to rebuild the kingdom. And we're going to need men in the spirit of David. David was first and foremost a worshiper. David was a man who understood that my greatest service to God is not anything I ever do on a platform or in front of other people. David was a worshiper when all he was was the forgotten 13th son of a man who had too many children and too many sheep. And he was out there living in the field, smelling of sheep and dirt, and nobody cared. And David knew he worshipped God there. Most of his psalms were written out there. And David was tested and tried in private, and he won the battle. Is there anyone among us? There are battles you've been fighting in private. And you thank God you fought them in private. Because you lost a few. And you've wondered, what are these battles for? Because God is looking to raise up a David who's willing to fight the giant. Who's willing to face the Goliath with nothing more than five smooth stones and a little sling that he can throw. Someone who's willing to run at the danger of this generation and say, you come at me with sword and spirit. You come with this thing and that thing and the other thing. But I come in the name of the Lord my God and I know that that's more valuable. We need men like David. But you see, even David didn't do it alone. David had a group of men, and I love preaching about them. I won't tonight, I'm just going to give you a really short synopsis. Group of men referred to as David's mighty men. I love these men in the Bible, I think more than anyone else I read about. Why? Because their testimony at the beginning. David is hiding in a cave. And it says everyone who is broke, literally, financially destroyed. They were bankrupt, in debt, they were a mess, they were weak. This is not how you build an army, God. But all of them came to David because they knew one thing. If the anointing of God is on him, then I need to follow wherever he goes. The mighty men of David stand for a people who understand wherever the anointing is going, God, I'm going. If the anointing is going into the dangerous neighborhood, then I'm going there too. If the anointing is going back to in India, then I need a plane ticket. If the anointing is going on the mission field, then I need to go. If the anointing is coming to my school, then I need to be the one it moves through. But wherever God goes, wherever my king goes, I'm willing to give even my life to ensure and it doesn't matter the enemy. Let me tell you some of the testimonies of David's mighty men. It starts with a man, I believe, his name is Eleazar. He stood at one point against 800 Philistines by himself. That's ridiculous. Listen, the general, listen, you don't have to, I've never served in the military. And I'm wise enough to know, if I've got a shotgun and 800 armed men come, I'm going that way. 
But Eliezer is of the type who said, no, no, no. The Lord has given me this ground, and I will not move from it. I may die in this spot, but I'm going to fight right here. And if I have to fight alone and nobody goes with me, I'm tired of having to have 500 lights and 700 people pretending to be behind me. I realize that it is no big deal for my God to save by many or by few. I will stand upon this rock. I will not be moved. And I am going to fight for the glory of God in this generation. That's David's mighty men. There was another that said he fought so hard that when the battle was over, his sword clave to his hand. Literally, he fought so hard that his sword became a part of him. His skin had been impressed over the metal. The metal handle of his sword had been ingrained into his hand. It speaks of a type of person who this has become so much a part of your life that if they banned the Bible tomorrow, it wouldn't matter. Come on, anyone here ever had people get annoyed with you? Because every time you open your mouth, it sounds like you're preaching scripture. God is looking for people like that. Because it's people like that that stand around David and make him able to conquer the enemies of God. And God is looking for some mighty men who will surround the David, who can take the land for God and conquer the enemies. But you see, the story doesn't end with the people of God conquered. There's a Babylonian captivity, and we live in the age of a spiritual Babylonian captivity. What happened in the Babylonian captivity? Two things. One, the enemies of God came into the territory of God and literally took God's people away from their promised land. And we live in an age where false teachers and false preachers and liars and charlatans have taken God's people away from the truth of what we're supposed to stand for. They've made it about our greed, and they've made it about sensuality, and they've made it about self-help, and they've made it about, well, Jesus is the best way that's been revealed to us. But you know, everyone has a legitimate way, and that is blasphemy. But you see, as the captivity came in, and people were being ca taken captive, on the road there, God was raising up prophets. And, and I say this literally with trembling. I'm afraid to say what I'm about to say. Because that title, the title of prophet, has been so abused. I told you yesterday, and I mean, nine times out of ten, in fact, no, ten times out of ten, you hand me a business card and says, the prophet so-and-so, I throw it out, I don't want to talk to you. You're charlatan in my book. Now, I have met true prophets. I do believe the prophetic ministry still exists. But I've never met a prophet who would demand that that be put as his title and demand that people pay him extra when he comes to the church because he's got a prophetic gift. I've never met a true prophet who does that. In fact, one of the truest prophets I ever worked under, David Wilkerson, died saying, don't give me that title. Call me a watchman. Call me a shepherd. Call me whatever you want. I am an underling. The only true prophet is God. Yet this man, in the 1950s, I believe it was, wrote about a coming age where all levels of evil and smut will come into our homes for free over a cable and eventually over the air. How did he know in the 1950s about the internet and Wi-Fi? See, we've turned the prophetic gift into I see someone here is going to give $1,000. God will multiply it 100 times. 
If you've ever given that thousand, you know it didn't get multiplied. And by the way, some of you, yes, you did. Okay, so where's the hundred thousand you have now? So you don't do good math. Some of you gave a thousand and then you still paid your bills. You said, see, God multiplied. That got multiplication. I was paying my bills before I gave the thousand. I got ripped off. And I know that's harsh to say in the house of God, but let's face it. Some of you have been ripped off by the charlatan who sent us 1995 and we'll send you the little bottle of holy water and you pour this on your loved one and they'll be made well. But that's not what scripture says. It says, is any among you sick? Call for the elders. They will anoint him with oil and those who are sick will recover. But you're sending your 1995 and your seed faith offering. And by the way, that itself is a lie. There's no such thing as a seed faith offering in the Bible. There is a first fruits offering for farmers to ensure that the leadership of God gets fed. If you own a farm, you are more than welcome to bring your first fruit offering here at the time of harvest. But unless you do, there's no such thing in the Bible. There's always been the free will offering. And the free will offering was more generous. The temple was built on the free will offering. The tabernacle was built on the free will offering to the point they had so much, they had to turn people away. When men twist your arm and make you believe that somehow your healing costs you money. I've worked in deliverance circles, these men who practice deliverance, and I've met men and it's broken my heart because some of them, I know they love Jesus. But they've fallen victim to the culture where if you call them and you believe your child is demon-possessed they're doing this and this, if you give them $100, they'll pray for them over the phone. For $500, they'll show up in your house. The only institution where you have to negotiate the amount of money you pay to be loved is prostitution. And we are done prostituting the Word of God. Jesus said, freely it has been given. There is not a gift that has ever manifested through me that God didn't give me freely. And I can say I earned it in prayer or I earned it in this, and that would be a lie because my prayer life only exists well when the anointing of God is on me. I am only hungry for God when he pulls upon my heart. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord above. There's nothing I have that I could have paid for. In fact, the only time in the Bible a man tried to pay for the anointing of God, he was cursed by the man of God. It happens once in the Old Testament. It happens to Simon in the New Testament. Stop paying money for the anointing. Because I read that in Elijah's day, there were many, many widows. But it was only to a poor widow who had nothing to give, who was ready to make her last meal and let her and her child die of starvation. And it was to them who could give nothing but a little meal cake of bread. And that's who God sent Elijah to. He didn't send them to the man who could give a million dollar seed faith offering. He didn't send them to the man who could give them a free jet plane. And by the way, can I clarify something for you? When you watch Christian television, and these men are giving away their jet planes, and I tell you why? It's the same jet plane that they've given to one brother, to another brother, to another brother. Do you know why? Because it costs $10,000 an hour to keep that jet in the air. So if I give you a free jet, the minute you figure that out, you're like, hey, brother, I want to bless you with a jet. And get a tax up, and you want to bless him, and you want, because let's face it, none of us, hey, it, it's a lot cheaper. You can, play, you can fly first class for a heck of a lot less than $10,000 an hour. Okay? Let's stop being hoodwinked 
Let's stop being bamboozled. Let's stop being tricked. And let's start being honest. And let's have God raise up mighty men who know the truth of God and raise up prophecy. I believe that God wants to resurrect the prophetic ministry, but he's looking for true prophets. Prophets in the spirit of Deborah or in the spirit of Jeremiah, of Elijah. Prophets in the spirit of John the Baptist who called sin, sin, who warned the people. Notice something. For all our best life now prophetic ministries, there's not a single prophet except the false prophets in the Bible who only prophesied good things. By the way, that's how I judge a prophetic ministry. If you only have good to say to me, biblically, you have to be a false prophet. Pastors, be wary of that. The man of God who comes into your church and immediately prophesies, I see it this time next year, they're going to have to widen this road and put in light because there's going to be so many thousands of people. You know why I'm saying that? To make you so anxious and here's the hook, then he's going to tell you. And that's going to happen because you proved you believe God by the offering you gave today. It's my way of making sure I go home with a thousand dollars instead of a couple of hundred. That's the game he's playing. But notice, I've seen men make that promise at 30 different conferences. Google searched those churches a year later. They didn't widen the street. They didn't put in the light. The church is still the same. I'm not saying the church suffered. But you gave up all that money for nothing. The prophets of God were risen up to warn the people, you're going in the wrong way. When I need a prophet is when I don't know how to reach God. Or when God is trying to tell me something and I'm trying not to listen. And the prophetic ministry is not glorious. There were a few, like Isaiah, who had a good life. Look at the other prophets. Come on, do you really want to be Jeremiah who spent months locked in the sewer system of Israel? Please read that carefully. He was not thrown in the dungeon. They were so sick and tired of the truth that they put him in the sewer system because they know after a month or two down there, he will die of toxicity. Those of you who are in the medical profession know what I'm talking about. Doesn't matter, you're not going to drown in it. Your skin's seeping in that. You're going to die. They wanted to kill him. Do you really want to be Ezekiel who was told, lay on your side for over 300 days. Now listen, it sounds easy, but come on. Anybody ever laid on just one side of the bed and woke up in the morning and you were a little sore and you imagine the bed sores you get? Come on, those of you who work in the medical profession, you know, that's why you've got to turn those people. That's why you got to turn, you can't lay on one side. Lay on one side for more than a year. A day for every day that my people have forgotten. A day for this. Look at, look at, um, oh my, um, how, there's one prophet I'm trying to think of. His wife's name, for some reason, is coming to me first. Gomer. Hosea, thank you. Okay? Do you really want to be him? Those who know the story, now those who don't know, huh? Who? To show God's people what it's like to love the people who won't follow them. He said, go and marry a harlot. Buy her. Bring her home. Love her. By the way, the most fascinating thing to me, do you know what his first two children were named? His first child was named not my child. When you marry a harlot and your first child, God says, now name him not my people. He's telling you something about that kid. She hasn't given up her old ways. And we know that because she went back into 
that life. She sold herself back into sex slavery because she would rather do that than serve the man of God. And God then says, now go buy her back again. You see, the prophetic ministry is difficult and it's dangerous because you're going to tell people what they don't want to hear and you're going to have to live a life. Some of you are wondering, why does this happen to me and why does that happen to me? Because if these things didn't happen to you and you try to talk to the suffering people in your congregation, they would look at you and go, oh, you've got a good life and always had it good. No, listen, I might be living all right, but it hasn't always been so good. And when I tell you that God is going to get you through the hard time, I've seen some hard days. I know what it's like. So I can speak positivity into your life and things are not going right because I know what it's like to watch my wife lay in a hospital and not know it's her and my two baby boys that are inside of her are ever going to make it out of that hospital. I know what it's like to have the doctor tell you, well, to be honest, we won't tell her this because we need her to keep fighting. But really, there's only about a 25% she makes it out of here with both those children. And I know what it's like to come every day to the hospital ward to visit your children for the first 30 days of their life while they're in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, and I can't even see them because it's more important to me that my wife spend time with them, and I've got to go home and put on a face and pretend it doesn't bother me all the while crying myself to bed because I don't even know my sons yet, but I know what it's like to hold them in my hands today. And every lie the enemy spoke over them was false. They are healthy. They are strong. They are the right size. They are not mentally or physically in any way inept. I know what it's like, so when I tell you you're going to make it, I'm not speaking from some high and lofty mountain. I've been in the valley. I've walked through the desert. I've gone through that field. And that's where prophetic ministry is born. It's not born in ivory towers with accolades and degrees on your wall and then paying you $20,000 to show up and speak. It's born in fire. And all the prophets were born in fire. And I believe that God is fire baptizing men and women again because he knows we'll have need of the prophetic. Just a few more archetypes. We also need women. I want to talk to the ladies. By the way, I'm not going to ask you to forgive me, but I'm going to explain. I speak a lot more to men than women because we live in an age where manhood is being trampled underfoot. I really, really mean that. If the young men in this audience are willing to be honest, they have been confused by their education about what manhood is. They've been taught to get in touch with their feminine side. Can I help you men? You don't have one. That's why I'm having such a hard time finding it. The next time your girlfriend, your wife, your sister, your mom tells you, you need to be more in touch with your feminine side, no. God made them male and female. Male and female made he them. I don't, well, I think it back. I do have a feminine side. Her name is Claudia Torres. She is my wife. She is my feminine side. I am masculine. I am male. I am man. And I'm tired of seeing men have to be more feminine and be more touch with their emotions. Your emotions lie to you. The heart is deceptive. There's a reason God made us different from our wives. Because their emotions has a place to play, but our ability, it's not that we're not emotional, but our ability to cut ourselves off from our emotions and see the world in logic and black and white makes it easier for us to make some of the hard decisions. Their emotion makes it easier for them to make sacrifices because they know the impact. You see, that's why we need women 
to be women and we need men to be men. But manhood has been under attack for so long. I've seen more to the men, but I want to speak to the women for a moment. We also need women of the type of Esther. When you read the story of Esther, it's amazing because the only story in the Bible where you never actually see the name of God mentioned. Did you know that? God is sowing the story that the Jewish people to this day keep a day of memorial to Esther and Mordecai. But the name of God is never mentioned. Every other book, God did and God moved and God, God left it in the hands of two people. An old uncle willing to give advice. You see men that that Caleb and Joshua spirit I was talking about. And a woman willing to listen. Who is Esther? Ladies, there are some of you in the room. Young ladies especially. God has gifted you. He's gifted you with beauty. He's gifted you with youth. He's gifted you with intelligence. He's gifted you with certain graces. He's gifted you with abilities that are going to open doors and put you in a place of influence. And this generation will convince you that you're there to get your best life now. But Esther says, if I perish, I perish. Perhaps God has raised me up for such a time as this. And the doors that are opening for you are not so that you can live your best life, but so that you can look out for this church and bring the church to a higher level and preserve the church from the attacks that are coming. He's opened doors so that you can open doors to others. He's made you popular so that you can defend the unpopular. He's given you certain grace so that you can extend grace to others who don't have it. And he's looking to raise up Esther's once again. But you see, if we're going to have an Esther, then our Esthers will need a Mordecai. Or more rightfully, they may need a Ruth. Or even more rightly, they may need a Naomi. You see, Ruth was only Ruth because Naomi was willing to take her under her wing. Technically, Naomi should have no connection to Ruth. The connection was broken when her son died. Ladies, there are some of you Older ladies, doesn't mean you're old, you're old Earl, okay? And you have these younger women, you have these little, some of you, you're young women, you have these little girls. You don't know why they're always around you. God is pouring the spirit of a name me in you. He wants you to raise up a roof who will so love God that she says, your God will be my God, and where you go, I will go. And if you go to the famine land, I'll go there. Whatever you do, I'm going to follow Use that influence wisely. God is raising up Esther's and he's raising up Ruth's and he's raising up Naomi's once again. But you see, God is also looking and this is where the rebuilding happened. Two of the most powerful figures in the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we need men and women of that spirit again. Ezra was a man of power and influence who used his power and influence to go back and rebuild the temple. It's talking about rebuilding worship. We talked about this last night. Please, I challenge you, stop listening to modern worship. Google search the lyrics of your favorite worship song and read them without the music in your head. And you'll find two-thirds of them aren't worship at all. But God has put a song in your heart that you're afraid to sing because it doesn't match what's coming out of Bethel or out of this place or out of that place. Stop being carbon copies of everyone else. I read my Bible and God is an originator. Satan is the copier. Everything Satan, everything God makes, Satan makes a forfeit. Satan makes a copy. Satan steals the copyright. 
stop trying to be like the hip church you see on YouTube and make your own path. God is raising up Ezra's who will do that, who will rebuild the temple because they know that people need a place to worship. It speaks of one who says that the worship of God and the sacrifices of God must come first. But he's also going to raise up a Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew it wasn't enough to build up this house. It doesn't matter if everything is right in here and intact in here. There's a city all around us whose walls are down. There are families that are wonderful here, but when they go home, the fights and the arguments stop. Their children are wonderful here, but they're cursing out their parents when they get home. And the, Nehemiah is the type of a person who says, we're going to rebuild the wall. We're going to put the protective circle of God around your home again. We're going to fix this marriage. We're going to fix this family. We're going to fix this relationship. We're going to fix this community. We're going to show people that no, they don't need new age and they don't need Islam and they don't need human secularism. They need Jesus. The true Christ. And God is raising up people like that again. And if time permitted, I could go on and on and talk to you about John the Baptist about how we need men after the spirit of Paul. By the way, I would definitely take a moment to tell you we need Mary in all three of her forms. There are three major Marys. One of them comes with a sister named Martha, and we need them all again. There's Mary, the mother of Christ, who even after the death of Christ, you see her mothering the people of God. Listen, I, I know some of you are immigrants to the United States. There's an old tradition in the U.S., of what they call church mothers. These elder women who were raised in God, who have tremendous faith, and they act as mothers to the entire church, even to the pastor. Because let's face it, men, even as men, every now and again, you need a mommy. Mommy doesn't judge. Mommy doesn't care. Mommy will correct, but mommy always loves. And mommy always has faith that your better days are ahead. And that's what Mary brought to the church. Jesus is gone, but better days are ahead. Jesus has gone on to glory, but better days are ahead. Persecution has begun, but better days are ahead. Stay the course. Remember the glory. Remember what my son called you to. And we need women in the house of God who can pray people through, who can pray the prayers that, other, that the single mom doesn't have time to pray. Oh, she doesn't even pray for her own kids. She's working two jobs and her husband is gone and she doesn't know what to do. But you have the time. You pray for her. You stand in her gap. We need women like that again. But we also need Mary, like Martha's sister, who just did this. Who knew that sitting at the feet of Christ, learning from him, hearing from him, being in the word, there is nothing more important. Husbands, once in a while, ladies, don't use this as an excuse all the time after this message. Once in a while, you're going to come home and the dinner was a little overcooked. Let's put it that way. Okay? And she's going to tell you, but I was in the Word and I got distracted. Don't get angry. You see, the difference between Mary and Martha, we need Martha. Martha's are the women who it doesn't matter how good they look, it doesn't matter how prim and proper and fragile and feminine they are, they're not afraid to get a little dirt on their nails and do the work that the church needs. And we need working Marthas. But we also need Marys who understand that sometimes the work has to wait. 
Sometimes the kids have to wait. Sometimes just for a moment, even my husband needs to wait. I'm shut in with Jesus. And I'm praying him through problems. He doesn't have time to pray because he's working two jobs and taking good care of our home. So I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to seek the Lord for him. I'm not going to berate him and beat him up when he gets home and say, well, you know, if you were praying more. No, I'll do it. Because I understand that he's doing his part and we each have to do our part. And we need Marys who understand that sitting at his feet, there's no greater place to be. But we also need Marys in the spirit of Mary Magdalene. There's a big controversy in the church and I'm not taking a position either way. I respect the rules of any house. There's a big controversy as to whether or not women have a place preaching this gospel. And I've heard say, well, you know, women can, women can do children's ministry. Can I tell you, stop disrespecting your children. I'm waiting for God to raise up men. Okay? And by the way, before you call me a hypocrite, one of the first places that I served where my teaching and preaching ministry was born was teaching to the, well, to the second and third graders at a church up in Orange County. Then I became what they called the master teacher in charge of first through fifth grade. And by the way, the fascinating thing, they had two services on Sunday. And the first service was me, and the second service was a man. And children sat under the leadership of men in children's church. And it changed the way church functioned. And it changed the way those kids grew. Stop saying that women can teach children because the children are less important because the children are the most important asset you have in this house. They're more important than the sound system, more important than the lights because you abandon those children this church will be closed in 40 years. But you raise them upright and this church will be growing. But you see, Mary Magdalene was the first evangelist. And she wasn't chosen because she was a woman. Jesus wasn't just trying to be sensational. Why was Mary Magdalene chosen as the first evangelist to go tell the truth that Christ is risen? Because she loved Christ too much to let him disappear. She loved Christ too much to let him go. She wasn't sure that he had resurrected, but when she saw the empty tomb, I love her interaction when she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. Because she says, Sir, if you know where they have taken my Lord, please tell me so I can go to him. To her, a dead Christ, a dead dying church is worth more than no church at all. Mary refused to let go. She saw the decay. She saw the death. She saw the brutal scars. She saw the blood run down. She saw the blood in the oil and the water gush out of his heart and lungs when they pierced him with the sword. She saw him give up the ghost. And yet, even the dead Christ was worth more to her than no Christ at all. And we need women like that who say, I will not let you go, Lord. I will worship at your feet. I will stand in the gap. I will pray. I will work. I will serve. I will worship. I will read. I will do whatever it takes. But Lord, I will not let you go. And I will not believe that my family is over. And I will not believe that my marriage is over. And I will not believe that my children are lost. And I will not believe that my grandchildren are going to be raised in a secular environment. And I will not believe the spirit of the age. And I will not believe the lies of the day. I will hold on to Jesus until he shows himself in resurrection power and when he does I don't care that they say women can't preach I will tell people of the revelation he gave me in the prayer closet I will tell them what this word says we need women of that spirit again 
And to match them, we need men like Peter, who though they failed and betrayed him, will turn around and lead a generation. We need men like Paul, who though in their youth spent time, like he said, Paul said, I wasted the church. Yet he raised up to be the greatest apostle of them all and write two-thirds of the book of the Bible. We need men who aren't going to be bothered by their pastor too busy looking forward. We need men like John who will go and get deep revelation and tell the church of things to come and encourage them and remind them that our better days are ahead. Brothers and sisters, we need to build upon this cloud. But when we build upon the cloud, we need to keep these words from 1 Corinthians 3 in our minds. I'm jumping around, but basically reading from verse 9 to 15. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. As I said, there's an expression, it's gotten so played out, it's actually dying. But it became very popular over the last couple of years, seeing your lane. I look at it this way, one of the first academic rules we ever learned. You cannot put square pegs in round holes. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Remember that game when you were a kid? You know all the squares? Be honest, how many of you were that kid? You tried everything in your power, beat that square peg. You tried like crazy, beat that square peg. It doesn't fit. And if you ever get it into the round hole, it breaks or it breaks the whole game. I gave you many, many archetypes tonight. But each and every one of us has a calling and a purpose. And none of us is fit to do another's job. Yes, I am aware that if men reject their calling long enough, God will pass that anointing on to somebody else because the work is more important than the men doing it. I am aware of that. But the truth is there are things. The Bible says that we were born into the kingdom for certain good works which Christ ordained beforehand. What is your time? What is God calling you to be? Is he calling you to be in Moses' address who goes out, back out into this world and brings people into the kingdom? Are you called to be a Joshua or Caleb who leads people into the promise? Are you called to be a David who conquers the enemies of God and fights in spiritual warfare? By the way, if you're called to that, God bless you. Because that's the hardest job in the church. Spiritual warfare is hard because as men, I'll be honest, I'd rather fight physically. I'd rather be put in a cage match with the type of top UFC competitors and get my brains beat in than keep fighting the fights against the demonic and against spiritual oppression. That's harder to fight. As men, something natural in us knows how to fight physical. Fighting spiritually is hard work. But if you're called to it, do it. If you're called to be a mighty man and stand around the Davids and protect them and keep them, then do it. If you're called to the prophetic, then do it. And don't waste it, and don't abuse it, and don't pimp it out. Be a true prophet. 
Fix your face like flint and be able to speak truth to the people even when they don't want to hear it. If you're called to be a mother to the church, then be that mother. No matter how many tears, no matter how many broken hearts, no matter how many times it costs you, no matter, and by the way, don't worry you don't have the resources. You open up your heart and your home, God will provide. I've seen it too many times in my life to know. God's math is awesome. Anyone here ever try to figure out God's math and it doesn't make sense? A thousand dollars came into the house this month. About four thousand went out, but the books are balanced and you don't stop asking. Anyone here learn just walk away, just God thank you and stop asking. It makes no sense. But God's promise is you can never outgive him. Give what he asks. Whatever it is God has called you to do, do it and do it enthusiastically. Stand to your feet. Jesus Christ defined a fool as any human being who hears his word and then doesn't do it. He literally defined foolishness that way. A man or a woman is a fool, the Bible says, if they say there is no God, but they are also a fool if they hear this word of God and do nothing with it. Tonight I want to give you an opportunity to do something with what you've heard. I do not care whether or not what you heard tickled your fancy or made you happy. But for some of you, and it showed in your faces, God spoke to you tonight. He may not have revealed all of it, but he spoke to you about something. If he spoke to you about something, now listen, hold on. If he spoke to you about your place in this church, I don't just mean this congregation, I mean the church generally. And you already knew that, and you're on that path, and you're comfortably there, maybe you are. He spoke to you tonight, pastor you, and he called you. He showed you something new. It may not be clear to you. Maybe you're like the blind man Jesus prayed for. He said, what do you see? I see people walking like trees, but this is not clear. But you see something. I want you to come to this altar. I'm believing God that in the next few minutes that we have, you come to this altar and cry out to him. There's nothing I have to offer. I'm not God's anointed man of power for the hour who will lay hands on you and suddenly you're going to see vision. No, no, no. Your power comes from above. But if you meet God in this altar and say, Lord, with open hands, take from me anything you need to take away. Any dream, any vision, any plan, any ministry, any growth, any program, any relationship, take it. And whatever responsibility you want to put into my hands, may it be if you come to this altar tonight with that heart, God is going to bless you. He's going to make the vision clear. And He's going to start you on a path tonight that will so radicalize your life, your ministry, your home, your family, that things really will be entirely different in your community. So that's you and God speaking. Come now. Come now. you got to get out of your seat. Because faith without works is dead. So God spoke to you about what he's calling you to do. And what he's calling you to be. Come and meet with God here.
a few moments. I don't say what I'm about to say. But as you were coming and I was praying, I really feel the Lord say, where are they? Where are they? Where are my builders? Where are my movers and where are my shakers who are going to build the kingdom of God? Where are my prophets? Where are my missionaries? These women have boldly answered, but there are some of you out there. God has spoken to you, and you're right to be affirmed. Because answering the call of God changes everything. By the way, if you're wondering, well, if I come to this altar and I admit, am I being called into full-time ministry? No. And yes, we talked about that yesterday. Full-time ministry is not getting a paycheck from the church. But yes, God intends everything you do every hour of the day to be ministered. And yes, it will radically change and upset some of your plans. But some of you, young men especially, God has spoken to you and you're staying there because it's safe. If you're a man and God has spoken to you, are you really going to let these women's faith in God's ability to outshine your trust in Him? If He's speaking to you, stop worrying about what people are saying to you. All it means is you came here, God is showing you something new. see these who have responded to your call tonight. Father, give them clarity. Father, speak to them that they would hear you as clearly as they're hearing me. Silence every other voice. Silence every lie of the enemy. Silence every lie of their past. And speak 
deep truths into their hearts and use them mightily for your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. That's a little simpler altar call than I'm used to, but God's given me direction to do one more thing before we go. I want to explain something to you, though, why I did this this morning. Like I said, one of the things that the church is suffering from is the cult of personality. So I'm tempted because it's what we expect. You brought the man of God outside the camp in. I'm supposed to lay hands on everyone. I'm supposed to put oil on their heads or do something. People are supposed to fall out. Yes and no. I'm not saying I wouldn't do that. God had told me to do what I do. But lately, I've been seeing God move powerfully. Listen, I was at a meeting where a young man was healed of terminal cancer. Only not a, I feel like I'm healed. You feel like you're healed because adrenaline is rushing. He went back to the hospital and got retested. He's gone. He's going to live. No one touched him. I have been at meetings with altar full of 30, 40, 50, 70 people. And people delivered of addictions. I've seen homosexuals and lesbians literally delivered of that spirit. No one touched them. They called their friends and said, what did you people do to me? What do you mean? I don't like this anymore. I don't want what I used to. And so I've learned to listen to God and I won't touch anyone who doesn't ask me to touch. So that no one walks away going, because see watch, if he starts something tonight, what he's starting is going to get difficult down the road here. It's going to get difficult down the road. And if I lay hands on you tonight, when it gets difficult, you go, Pastor, when is Pastor Pete coming back? But because whatever you got you didn't get from me, when it gets difficult, you're going to go back to your altar, maybe at home, maybe here, but you're going to go back to the one who gave it to you, and you won't be with me. I feel like it's over my job to work myself out of the job and get me. But God has asked me to do something a little different tonight. If you are a woman and your husband is here, your husband and your wife is here, We'll find that very quickly. Husbands and wives, I want you to find each other and hold hands. If you're married and your spouse is here, go, go, find them. Now, literally, I want you to go hold their hand. Some of you got confused and you're like, wait, which side do we go to? Meet in the middle. If your wife is here, go find her. If your husband is here, go find him. I want you to hold their hand.